Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And I would like to wish all of us together a happy one year anniversary to the podcast. Woo! This is something we've wanted to do basically since we graduated. And we finally had time last year when uh, everyone had time. Everyone had all the time in the world. And we've loved every minute of it. And it has been an amazing journey so far. And that's mostly because we've had you here listening and sharing with us your thoughts and your feelings and just your presence. So thank you. So in honor of the podcast birthday, We wanted to talk about a book that we've had in the queue since before we started, so more than a year, and that book is Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, which was formerly titled Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World in Four Parts by Lemuel Gulliver, first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships. Jeez. I know, right? (laughs) This is like a banger of a title. It was published on October 28th, 1726, which was yesterday, almost 300 years ago. That's so fun. So it's like both of our anniversaries together. It just happenstance that it falls well enough. (laughs) That's amazing. Before we start, yes, this will totally work as a standalone episode if you just want to listen to this. That's totally cool. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the pod. But it's also the first of a mini series that we're going to be talking about some travel narratives. Before we launch you into that again without telling you we're doing it, we will be talking about Gulliver's Travels and then the Book of Negroes and then Kindred and they'll all be contained within their own weeks and then at the end we'll talk about some themes running through all of them and Amy's lovely comparative essay. Essays. There's more than one. We're gonna kick it off with Gulliver's Travels because it was, you know, the foundation of all these comparative essays. This is an essay that I wrote on November 8th, 2016. So it's almost the anniversary of that. The stars have aligned for this episode to happen. You love Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, only three of the books though. Only only the three books that we care about. I would say this book is your baby. Yes. I like it too, but it's it really belongs to you, the reader. And because of that, I will let you take us away with the summary. Well, you're not really letting me take you away with the summary. I'm reading off of Sparks Notes. <laughs> because of when it was written and how dense it is, I don't have the patience to write a summary myself. And I don't remember all the nuances myself either. So thank you to Sparks Notes. Take it away, Spark Notes. So obviously, Gulliver's Travels recounts the story of Lemuel Gulliver, um, who's an Englishman who was a surgeon, but not a great one. And then he became a sailor and he also wasn't a great one. But it's a first person narrative about his adventures and what happens to him in these travels. So what happens first is, you know, he is a bad surgeon. He has to go on ships to be ship surgeons. It, It doesn't go well. And he loses his ship and his crew and lands in this place. He takes a cat nap because he's all like, I want to rest because I just capsized, essentially. And he finds himself in this place called Lilliput. He is woken up by finding himself bound by a bunch of tiny threads and surrounded by these six inch tall people. Now, the book describes him as being like climbed on by these six inch tall people. And like there's like 900 of them carrying him. And I'm like, six inches is not incredibly small. 
small. But in my head, when I was like reading this the first time, I thought they were like centimeters tall. Like teeny, tall. teeny, tiny. Yeah, like barely you can see them. Six inches is, I would imagine only 200 people could carry him, like tops. Yeah, but I mean, is this Gulliver being an unreliable narrator? Perhaps. Is it Jonathan Swift not knowing how math works? Also perhaps. So, you know, they're not afraid to like attack him. They throw arrows at him. He wrestles them off. Doesn't go really well, but eventually he figures out like how to tell them that he's hungry and thirsty. So they bring him like a bunch of food and he basically like eats three years worth of food for them. Which is convenient that they just had it on hand. Convenient. You know, again, does Jonathan Swift understand math? (laughs) But, you know, they're hospitable, but, you know, risking famine by having Gulliver around. He's taken to the capital city, chained to the building, presented to the emperor, who's quite entertained by Gulliver. And Gulliver's flattered by the attention of royalty because he's a simple man. A simple, poor, bad surgeon. Yeah. And eventually Gulliver, like, makes friends with them they start tolerating him. They're like, you can have your freedom back if you serve us as this giant man to protect us from everything. Fair. So Gulliver becomes a national resource, as House Marks Notes puts it, used by the army in its war against the people of Blefuscu, um, whom the Lilliputians hate for doctrinal differences concerning the proper way to crack eggs. So either at the tippy top or at the bottom bottom. A lot of their politics are like this, where it's just like really weird conflicts over things that don't matter. Mm, I wonder why. It's a, Yeah, well, I think there's like an actual satirical reason, but I also think it's an interesting play on their smallness like they're small so their conflicts are small and petty and trivial Mm, but I mean how do you crack an egg back when I was a vegetarian and I used to bake with eggs I would crack them from the side like a regular person from the side like a regular person we we are correct Gulliver's used to like wrangle a bunch of boats from the Blefuscus I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right I'm dyslexic I'm sorry and the emperor's like you have to like keep attacking them and Gulliver's like "Ah, I don't want like any enslavery happening here so let's just let dogs lie kind of thing but I do want to go meet them but eventually like as he goes to meet them Gulliver is convicted for treason because he put out a fire in the Empress's palace space with his urine yeah this is the most hilarious scene to me I think it's so funny like it's so gross to think of but it's just absolutely a barrel of laugh urinating in public is illegal in the book it's like sad that they have super arbitrary rules. Which is also funny. But Gulliver escapes, doesn't have to, you know, lose his eyes, and he finds a boat, like a normal people boat, gets it repaired by the Blafuscus, and then sets sail for England, and thus concludes his time at the Lilliputians. Hooray! And then if he were a normal person, he would be like, I'm never getting on a boat again. (laughs) Yeah, and he's not. So, after staying in England with his wife and family for two months, he goes on to a next voyage, which again, doesn't end well because he's bad at sailing <laughs> and it takes him to the land called Brobdingnag. Here he's discovered by a farmer who treats him like a show animal basically. He parades him around and his daughter basically starts dressing Gulliver up and making a house for him and they're they're very much friends. But he's also like very much her Polly Pocket. He is her Polly Pocket because the Brobdingnags are humongous giants. Like their grass is 20 feet tall. Yeah like they're one blade of grass to him looks like a tree. Yeah, huge. Whereas in Lilliputian land, he was 
the size of their trees. Their trees are seven feet tall. That's like bigger than an old growth forest by a lot. But yeah, the daughter's name is Blumdolklich and that's an awful name. But she really loves Gulliver and when Gulliver gets sold to the queen of Brobdingnag, he manages to find a like a governess for her within the palace, which is really nice. But basically he has to like play for the queen and he learns their language, but he's very repulsed by these people. Picture this. You are person size. And... <laughs> You're being played with by these giants who basically, you know, hold both your arms out and make you swing around like evilness. They see him as such a little plaything that the ladies of the court just like undress themselves in front of him and stuff and they urinate in front of him. But apparently their urination is like a torrential downpour of sound and their nipples are huge and gross. Like there's nothing sensual about these giantesses. They're very grotesque in their grandioseness. But their politics are really different because he does chat with the king. So he does. He like he discusses this with the king and the king asks him many questions about England because Gulliver explains like how violent the history of England and Britain is. And the king finds the world that Gulliver describes to be ridiculous, contemptuous, and strange. He tells him that he concludes that most Englishmen sound like odious vermin. That's about right, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that they see his customs that way because obviously it's a way for Jonathan Swift, an Irishman, to just demolish the English. But also, like, we've got the context now of how Gulliver saw the Lilliputians as, like, small and petty and trivial. And it's clear to us, the reader, that the Brobdingnagians have, like, a deeper understanding because they're bigger and their, I don't know, brains are bigger or whatever and they're like an elevated society and their view of England and Europe being in all these battles over like land and religion and whatever they were fighting about at the time would be the same to them as the Lilliputians cracking an egg on one side or the other side is to Gulliver. It's like the size directly like reflects how petty your problems are. Yeah. But you know Gulliver is like this king knows nothing about politics. He knows nothing about how to fight wars and do things. So yeah he He's like, it goes right over his head, I guess because it's so tall. But uh, he's like, why can't he see that Europe is the best place ever and England is amazing and blah, blah, blah. It does remind me of a joke in Ella Enchanted. It's kind of like a throwaway line. She's like, giants don't hold grudges. They're bigger than that. And it's like the giants are literally bigger than our little petty problems. He gets attacked by like a monkey as well. It's fun. Here he almost dies. This happens multiple times. He gets attacked by rats. Almost dies and then eventually you know he goes on a trip with the uh, royal couple and the cage he lives in is picked up by an eagle and dropped into the sea where he's picked up by normal people you keep saying normal people as if the lilliputians and the brobdingnagians are not normal people and if we have any brobdingnagian or lilliputian listeners they're going to be very offended yes but in the context of the book they're abnormal <laughs> so then we get to like part three which is the part i hate the most and also the part that has the most stuff about education and academics and why education in Britain at the time was kind of silly. Yeah, and particularly science, which like I don't care about that much. I know it's an interesting topic, but uh, it's not like something that I'm invested in. It's literally a paragraph in the Sparks Notes summary, okay? I will read it word for word. Next, 
Gulliver sets sail again, and after an attack by pirates, he ends up in Laputa, where a floating island inhabited by theoreticians and academics oppressed the land below, called Balnabarbi. The scientific research undertaken in Laputa and in Balnabarbi seems totally inane and impractical, and its residents too appear wholly out of touch with reality. Taking a short side trip to Glubdadrip, Gulliver is able to witness the conjuring up of figures from history, such as Julius Caesar and other military leaders whom he finds much less impressive than in books. After visiting the Lugnagians and the Strudelbergs, <laughs> the latter of which are senile immortals who prove that age does not bring wisdom, he is able to set sail to Japan and then back to England. Very good. I think the only thing that I got out of that is that there's very spooky ghosts and it's Halloween time. Festive. All I got from that is at one point somebody plays chess. Uh, not important. Doesn't relate to the essay I'm about to talk about. So finally on his fourth journey. You know, after spending five months with his family and getting his wife pregnant, Gulliver sets out again and uh, he arrives on an unknown land. This land is populated by Hwinims, rational thinking horses who rule and have yahoos who are brutish human-like creatures as their servants. Gulliver learns their languages, narrates his voyages to them, explains them the constitution of England, explains to them how yahoos and Hwinims are like inverted in his land, you know, because we have people and horses and and, you know, they think he's a yahoo, but because he won't eat hay, they're like, maybe he's like one of the higher breeds of them. And eventually the Hwinims learn that, you know, they should castrate the yahoos so that they don't continue to populate themselves. Yeah, and the yahoos are described as kind of a devolved human. I got more ape-like from their description. It was like, they sometimes walk on their hind legs, he says, because he doesn't recognize that they're humans at first. And they have hair on some of their bodies, like ver, and then other places are bare. So I kind of pictured them like a previous evolution of humans, maybe Homo erectus or like Homo habilis type situation. And they don't speak a language that he bothers to learn. Yeah. But he doesn't see them as being worth his time because he has these like super intellectual horses to hang out with. He spends over two years with them, <laughs> just conversing about life, philosophy. And then eventually, you know, they realize that he's a bit too much like Yahoo's and uh, they banish him and he's real sad about it. Banished. So they learned what they needed to from him. And then he's like, OK, well, I guess I have to like go home. Except when he goes home, he can't stand the sight or the smell of humans. He buys two horses and converses with them or at them instead of spending time with his wife and children. So going with our principle of the author is dead and it doesn't matter what was the intended satire in this, I think that this last book makes a pretty solid argument for animal sentience. Not just because the Huinams are human-like in their intelligence and behavior, but because you could easily read it as saying that humans are just another animal and if things had like like shaken out differently in history then another species could easily be ruling over the earth instead of humans. Like in an alternate timeline it could be horses. And then in that reading, which is now mine, Gulliver's real fault, it isn't revering the Huinams and forgetting about humanity. It's in the first place believing that any species doesn't have intelligence and value. That's fair, but I don't think he learned it. No, he obviously didn't because he, he just went from like thinking horses were a brute to be exploited to thinking humans were a brute to be exploited. So he just lessons, lessons not, not learned. learned. I posit that this is a story about examining
thing the other. In my case, it's how Gulliver, through his travels, becomes the other himself. Which, yes. knowing that Jonathan Swift was Irish, the first other to England, is kind of interesting. So I posit that the perception of the other in Gulliver's travels aligns with the 18th century notions of the other in travel narratives. That the natives of a land must be thoroughly described and compared to the English to prove their worth as people. The others that Gulliver encounters in his travels are both stereotypes and caricatures of the perceptions of others in travel narratives. The othering that Gulliver imposes on them in their respective lands provides a contrast against Gulliver's developing otherness throughout the novel. This otherness is a direct result of his travels. The traveler is another both in the land he visits and at a home once he is changed through his travels. This otherness is necessary for a narrative that comments on the colonial traveler's questionable status as an anthropologist. Yeah, I think that's a great reading that encapsulates the entire book and not just book four. So essentially, my entire thing is that through all of these travels that he goes through, he kind of absorbs some of the otherness. He appropriates what he enjoys, critiques what he doesn't, and then comes back and is that one guy who went to like to Thailand or something on like spring break and he comes back and he's wearing a bunch of beads. I went backpacking. It was amazing. It was such an amazing experience and like didn't take the time to truly understand the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Like he literally just partied on a beach. Yeah. Gulliver is a spring break backpacker. Like Gulliver is supposed to represent, you know, the best hopes of progressive modern life, but is brought through an alien side where he can comprehend neither the value nor in some cases the language of of where he's going. So, you know, Gulliver learns a lot of the languages of where he's going. Like, he can't do it in Lilliput because he can't comprehend their languages and he's not really trying because he sees them as lesser than. So he tries to speak high and low Dutch, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, and lingua franca, but it doesn't work. Because language separates so much culture, like, he wasn't able to enter himself into this culture. And I think that was to his detriment and that's what he learned the next voyage around. Yeah, language is so integral to a culture because the way that you see the world gets ingrained in the way that you describe it. Like in Anuktitut, there's something like 24 words for snow and it describes like all the different types of snow because it's important in that particular culture to know if this is a powdery snow that you can not walk across easily or is it like a packing snow? Is it like a snow you can build something with? Whereas like English would just say snow. Or like in Japanese, there's not a word for bitch because you just wouldn't say it. There's no use for it. Well, there's a language here um, and I bring it up if we want to move away from Laputa. The Huynims don't have a word for falsehood because they only tell truths because their entire like language and culture stems from rationality and morality. So lying in falsehood is like it's a purely human and Yahoo attribute. Yeah, I don't think a horse would lie to me. My cat would lie to me but I don't think a horse would. Oh yeah, cats have like multiple words for false Falsehood. Cats have 27 words for falsehood. But the Huynims don't. So, you know, I think it's really important that like we see here language as a very important, you know, aspect of what makes you an other in a land. And I think it's used often to other other people. Um, It's one of the first few things that is used to say that somebody's not as smart as you, so to speak. Language? Yeah. Yeah, I think that goes back to what we were talking about with my Antonia, where everyone wasn't believing that Antonia and her family were intelligent because they had an accent when they were speaking English. Meanwhile, 
Antonia is speaking her at least second language and all the people who were mocking her were only speaking one language. That was all they could do. And it's like, don't knock someone who's like learned more and expanded their horizons. There's so much to be said here about like what erasing language does to a culture, what like not learning somebody's language does to like your um, conversations with them. Yeah, absolutely. But this is a short podcast. We'll leave it at that and we'll move on with the the Brobdingnags. The issue here is they're very different in their size and their size makes them scary, right? We talked about that earlier. Yeah, big old giants with big old nips. Big old nips. (laughs) So with their big old nips... Gulliver is put in a vulnerable position. What makes a lot of the Brobdingnags repulsive is like this excess of properties, like this excess of like their size, their smells, their sounds. It's all very much larger than life. And this makes Gulliver feel like they're monstrous and like he feels very nauseated by them. In the city, he describes the inhabitants as the most horrible spectacles uh, that an English eye ever beheld. But the Lilliputian, he has this like fast fascination with their miniatureness you know he liked to put them in his pockets and stuff and it was really funny he would play around with them like Polly Pocket yeah and then when it's done to him he doesn't fucking like it no kidding no kidding I think it's very interesting that we get only his perspective because he seems not to be self-aware in any way ever like he is disgusted by the Brobdingnagians but he never takes a second to be like huh maybe this is why the Lilliputians didn't like me he's just like like, oh yeah, the Lilliputians are douchebags. Moving on. Yeah, and his fascination with all this like grotesqueness is very anthropological, mm-hmm. which has its own set of problems. Obviously, this is all satire. Can't necessarily say that Jonathan Swift saw people this way. Yeah, and it is a satire of the travel narrative genre. Yeah. So I think he's intending to do what you're saying the book is doing. Hitting the nail on the head, right? The Brobdingnagian royals hold England in great contempt as if their size equals to their superiority, which we talked about earlier. So they're othered by Gulliver's narratives through the actions and words of their prince. They are described as anti-English by Gulliver. Their prince describes the English as people who contrive little nests and burrows that they call houses and cities. He is positioning that the scale of their dwelling is insignificant, therefore they are insignificant to him. He disagrees with the popular opinion that England is the seat of virtue, honor, and truth. Which is fair. <laughs> so Gulliver sees the prince as an other because he has a very unpopular opinion which i think in today's days is a ding 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 moment and again not taking the time to realize oh maybe i'm the one with the unpopular opinion if this entire culture holds this opinion of me maybe it's just we have different cultures and i'm not like the neutral voice that knows everything yeah so i wrote this gulliver in writing about the Brobdingnadians, writes that they are out of all degree of equality in comparison with him having a larger than life physical gives them a personal superiority complex that Gulliver and his narrative discourse denounce. These factors express a brutishness of the people that differentiates them from Gulliver, England, and their Lilliputian counterparts. So it's all great because we have like the really small people and the really big people and then we have this weird third part of the novel which I didn't really read for this essay but apparently I wrote an entire paragraph about it. Just like spark notes. So there's emphasis about the uh, physicality of the Laputa people um, and how they condemn their husband and flaunt their loves around and in front of them. The mistreatment of men comes in form of a pun on their name, more precisely how the injudicious reader hears the Spanish laputa or whore 
in the name. Their promiscuity represents them as a foil for their husbands because they exemplify the academic seclusion and lack of emotional connection. So (laughs) I wrote part three of the novel serves as a brief collection of voyages that prepares Gulliver for his greatest and last adventure. (laughs) Gulliver learns, you know, that he no longer wants immortality and that the differences that occur in like the physicality of the old people is very traumatizing for him. So seeing these old people is a lot. Like he has a lot of feelings about bodies again. It sounds like the worst curse I could imagine because their whole thing is that they are immortal but they still experience old age. Like they don't have eternal youth like a vampire. They age. They just can't die and they're considered legally dead at age 80. So that sucks. So Gulliver, as we mentioned before, gets into the country of the Whinims. Here he, you know, finds different types of people. So in his previous voyages, Gulliver mainly encounters people whom he sees as negative others, or at least ones he does not wish to emulate. His perception of the other changes greatly with the Whinims. He believes that they are an other that is superior to himself and subsequently to England. The Whinims are purely rational beings that face no conflict between moral principles and impulses. They are essentially the perfect human race except for the small caveat that they are horses. They are so different and yet orderly that Gulliver says they must be magicians who had thus metamorphosed themselves into horses. It was discussed earlier that language is very important being an other and how we're perceived as others. In this book of Gulliver's travels, the same issue reoccurs. It's worth noting that despite being the most rational beings, they also have the most inhuman language. He learns to speak in grunts, <laughs> essentially. But Gulliver learns their language and learns how to communicate with paraverbal signs, such as the universal hand, or in this case, hoof to mouth to indicate food. Also, I love that even though they're horses and they would definitely be eating a different way they still do the hoof to mouth thing yeah and they sit at a table yeah with chairs they still have like a little cart yeah and the yahoos pull them around <laughs> so the representation of communication here is remarkable considering that although he is already a polyglot he does not internalize any other language as much as he internalized the huinim's language this is important so you know i talked about how they don't have the word for falsehood but the huinim's are astonished at gulliver's capacity for speech and reason and that's why they keep him around despite his body type which is yahoo like so due to their rational thought and way of life Gulliver soon finds himself having feeling of respectful love and gratitudes towards the Whinims. Gulliver posits that these creatures, the Whinims, are the most suited to be placed above society because of their reason. So he's still valuing a certain way of thinking over others. He just hasn't learned. He's done so much traveling and he still hasn't learned. a dumbass. So throughout his travels, Gulliver has encountered the other. He sees some at good some as bad, and some as so great that he wishes to become them. His desire to emulate the Huynam is why, towards the end of his travels, Gulliver becomes the other. On his first voyage, Gulliver is impeached because he is the other. Accused of high treason for both conspiring and urinating against his majesty of Lilliput and his belongings. Belongings here being his wife. Uh, Gulliver is literally the perfect target, in part due to his size. He is often called the Man Mountain and his life is fully dictated by the states. His time in Brobdingnag is also not very pleasant. He's treated as a doll, he's carried by Glumjaklitch, he's paraded 
infiltrated through the kingdom. Gulliver has no agency in Brobdingnag. Like, he's not seen as a person. He's stripped of his clothes, his masculinity, and, you know, once he returns home, he finds his perception of his wife and daughter also changes, which begins a newfound displeasure in his home life. I think if you've seen all the pores in a nip, when you see a normal nip, you're probably like, yikes. <laughs> so the perceptives from giant to miniature that he experiences respectively skews his interpretation of their land. Their shocking physical differences from the English creates an aversion to accepting their differences and make him unable to form an objective anthropological perspective of them. Such an aversion is not present when he meets the Huynims because horses are familiar to him. There is no objective anthropological perspective. Like any interpretation of a culture is going to come from your own culture and your own way of understanding the world. Yes, but the only correct one in this case and this time is the English perspective. Oh, of course. Silly me. Yes. <laughs> Silly you, Chantel. That was my mistake. I forgot that the English know everything in the world. So the worst othering for Gulliver happens during and more specifically after his time with the Huynims. He is seen essentially as Yahoo in physicality and Gulliver is othered by the Huynims. The only thing that distinguishes him from his Yahoos is his rationality and the clothes on his back. Because Yahoos are, and in this case Gulliver is seen as a, a slave to the Huynims, he's unable to form an objective study of the Huynims. He has a bit of a Stockholm Syndrome relationship with them. That's fair. In the end, the Huynims send Gulliver back to his native country, not because he behaves like a Yahoo, but simply because he looks like one. He grows to even hate himself and other humans for being too much like Yahoos. He tries to become more like a Huynim and starts to imitate their gait and gestures, trotting around like a horse. I just love that so much. It's so funny. Um, his journey home from the land is both foreign and alienating. Gulliver others himself in front of his friends in the narrative because after his travels and having found the perfect civilization, he's unable to comprehend a life other than the one that follows the Huynim's way. Gulliver clings to the fantasy of the Huynim good life against all odds and most ironically against all reason. Ah, mm. I see what you did there. Yeah, I see what you did. Um, upon his return to England, he is so repulsed by the Yahoos in his motherland that he only allows his wife to sit with him at dinner if she stays at the other end of the table and he plugs his nose with rue, lavender, or tobacco oh, leaves. Oh, that's so mean. It's so sad that she didn't just divorce him. In his love for the Huynims, Gulliver loses all sense of self and becomes the other in his homeland. He becomes the outsider looking in and does not like what he sees, smells, or hears. His love for the Huynims and his adherence to their way of life by conversing with his horses at least four hours a day. He talks to horses four hours a day. Horses are great. I would talk to horses four yeah, hours a day. but he doesn't spend time with his human family. They could talk to the horses together. Yeah, but then his wife would be around. <laughs> and he'd have to plug his nose. So essentially, Gulliver becomes another following his travels into other land. Very interesting. From systems of government to treatment of others to society as a whole, the other is a didactic tool, which is a teaching tool. Rather than explicitly asserting what is right, the other, in this case, satirically aims to correct by vexing people. The key part of this didactic tool comes into play when Gulliver, a colonial explorer, becomes the other. Of course, the obvious others are the Lilliputians, the Brobdingnadians, the Strutzbugs, and the Huynims, but in the end, it is Gulliver himself who is the other in England. The unexpected othering of the hero allows Gulliver's travels to parody the travel narrative and satirize the 18th century perspective on the colonial other. So basically you're saying the other is not like a real thing. It's just like someone's perception of a set of behaviors and Gulliver's set of behaviors changes so much that people don't perceive him 
him as like them in England anymore. Correct. Cool, cool, cool. I think it's interesting and I don't think I have any interpretation of it, but Gulliver keeps like getting promoted and <laughs> being higher and higher up yeah. in the boat. And then the way he gets kicked off the boat becomes increasingly violent. So he's just a surgeon and then the book like capsizes and that's like, oops, accidentally you're gone off the ship. Now you're in Lilliput. And then he's like one of the fellow sailors and they get stuck in a storm and then they're like lost and sailing around and they kick him off the boat for some reason. I guess he's just too annoying, uh, which is fair. And then he's like the co-captain or whatever and there's pirates and he gets mutinied by pirates. And then he's the actual captain of his own ship and his own crew mutinies against him. So it's like more and more intentional that they're kicking him out the more power he has. They're like, you have too much going on here. I think you should not be able to make all these decisions get off my boat. I think like everyone recognizes that Gulliver's not like a reliable person. He's not someone people want to have around. So I think like we can kind of read him as if not an unreliable narrator, at least a narrator that isn't giving us the full picture yeah. in terms of like analysis of what's going on. So the reception of this book, uh, it was very well received right out of the gate. We which is fun because it's a very good book. Adults loved it as a satire. There were obviously a lot of people who hated it, but like it's better to have your book be hated than just people don't have any opinion of it. It's better that someone's having a strong opinion of your book. And there were a lot of people who loved it and a lot of people who didn't. But also children adored it as a travel narrative. And if you're thinking, huh, kids were reading this? Yes, kids were reading this. We didn't talk about this in our recent picture book episode. But children's lit in the sense of actual books written with children as the target audience is like a fairly recent category in literature. And before that, kids were just out here like reading any adult book that was engaging and fun enough to hold their attention. So because of that, obviously, like the satire was going over the kids heads because kids don't know about like English politics. <laughs> we don't know about English politics. <laughs> but actually, I heard a lot of kids who read this were like really invested in the idea that Lilliput and Brobdignag were like real places and that a bunch of kids wanted to become explorers so that they could go there. And I think it's like there's something really unique and special about the way that kids buy into fantasy elements of books that that magic is lost as an adult. And I think it's really fun to look at. And I thought it would be also fun to talk about if we had any books like that when we were kids. So did you have any books that you like bought into like that? I didn't have that. Did you have that? Like aside from Black Beauty? Yeah, I did because I really loved The Borrowers and I absolutely 100% thought that not only were there thumb-sized people that existed and not only were there borrowers in my house, but that specifically the borrowers in the book series The Borrowers lived in my house like Arietti and Homily and Pod lived in my house and I would leave like little skittles and treats for them around before I went to bed at night because they always go borrow at night and they go and like find little stuff that they can use in the house that people won't miss and my 
parents were like totally on board with this. They thought it was really cute. So they would take teeny tiny little bites out of the treats and leave me like itty bitty little notes signed from Arietti. And they would make like little twine and paper clip grappling hooks and like leave them on chairs and stuff. And I was like so into it. I was like, absolutely, there are 100% borrowers in my house. That's where they live. And it went on for a year. And the only reason it stopped wasn't because I stopped believing. It was because they had to tell me when I refused to get a cat because in the borrowers, they get a cat and the cat chases the borrowers and they get really scared. And there's like one cousin that they had that they think might have been eaten by a cat. So I'm like, oh, we can't get a cat because she'll eat the borrowers. And my parents wanted to get a cat because we started getting mice in the house. And that's probably because I was leaving Skittles everywhere. So that's Gulliver's Travels. Well, that was fun. Thank you for joining us for our anniversary episode. We had a blast. And thank you for hanging on with us for this journey. If you have not been hanging on with us, welcome. Please hang on with us. We like having you. You can find us at Unsighted Pod on Twitter and Instagram if you want to interact with us and if you want to give us your opinions about this very weird book. We would love to hear those. Uh, We would also love to get your reviews. If you have opinions about us, it would really help us if you leave a five-star review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find us. That's everything for today. Thanks for coming, and we hope to see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable. Bagel nips sounds like bagel nips.